Let's turn this morning to Acts chapter 7, please. Acts chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 54 to 60. Acts 7, 54 to 60. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The church's first martyr that we have a record of. The story of Stephen. The death of Stephen in a most cruel awful manner. I want to ask you a question. Is this story a tragedy or is it a triumph? What perspective do we have? Is this tragedy or is it triumph? By their most cruel and hate-filled action, the Sanhedrin that had assigned Jesus to death now crushes the mighty Pentecostal revival that had been sweeping through Jerusalem, affecting the surrounding towns and cities. Via this action, the mighty revival has been snuffed out. Overnight, the mighty move of God has been brought to a halt. What a tragedy has happened. How many know that when God begins to move by His presence, and we seek Him, liable to get a reaction from the kingdom of darkness, who will do everything within His power to stop what is being birthed by the Holy Spirit? And it appears through this tragic story of Stephen, that this great momentum that's been happening for about eight years of history is snuffed out. I don't know about you, but I find reading the first six chapters of the book of Acts quite thrilling. Let me rehearse for you the momentum of what God has been birthing and what has happened here. Because, you know, when the day of Pentecost had fully come in Acts 2, after a ten-day prayer meeting, can you imagine us all being locked in a room for ten days? And together, all we do for ten days is seek God. After a ten-day prayer meeting, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, we read that a mighty rushing wind filled the room. Tongues of fire sat upon each of their heads, and they all began to speak in other tongues. A transformed Peter stands up, and he begins to preach. And in one day, unrehearsed, not a planned mission or meeting, but because of the spontaneous explosion of the Spirit of God in an unrehearsed manner, Peter gets up, who just not too long ago denied he even knew it was Jesus, stands up 
and he preaches, and 3,000 people are converted, 3,000 people are baptized in water, and 3,000 people are baptized in the Holy Ghost. It's a pretty good start, wouldn't you say? And these 3,000 are so filled with the Holy Spirit that they are immediately drawn and swept into the daily life of the church. They have to go to church every day, not just on one day a week. They were so full of the Holy Ghost, they didn't know what to do with their new life. They had to go to church every day. They were in daily prayer, daily prayer meetings, daily fellowship, daily soaking up all the teaching they could get. If there wasn't a meeting on, they made sure they started one. They were so hungry for the things of God. As a result, every day, your Bible says, every single day, people were being added to the church. Happened on Monday, happened on Tuesday. It happened on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, and Sundays. Every day of the week, there was such a spontaneous explosion of the Spirit of God that people were being added to the church every single day. Hallelujah. Come on, you can shout amen or something. And then when you get to Acts chapter 3, an irrefutable and a notable miracle takes place at a gate called Beautiful. There was a man there who was over 40 years of age, crippled from birth, never walked in his life. And Peter and John are going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Something possessed Peter that day. I'm sure they had passed that man many times. But something possessed Peter that day. It must have been a gift of faith rising up on the inside of him. And he says, I don't have silver, I haven't got gold, but I'm going to give you something better. I can just in my mind see that guy with his hand out looking for alms, and Peter just grabbed it. He said, I don't know about you, boy, but you're walking today. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The guy didn't have a choice because Peter, in that gift of faith, took him by the hand and pulled him up and he was going to walk or dance or fall on his face, one of the two. But the Bible says he went walking and he went leaping and he went praising God. And in unrehearsed, unscheduled, unplanned meeting, they get preaching again and there is the spontaneous conversion of five thousand people to the Lord. It's pretty good, isn't it? Well, the enemies of the gospel, specifically the Sadducees who don't like anything about resurrection, they begin a wave of threatenings against the apostles. But as they threaten the apostles, the only result it gets is that it drives the church further into prayer. And after the church going back into prayer, there's more powerful prayer meetings, not people shaking, but buildings are shaking under the power of God. And there's a further increase of signs and wonders and miracles taking place every day of the week. It's just building and building and building. Great grace comes upon the church resulting in tremendous unity and an unusual caring one for another. Man, this is good stuff. And then the church begins to be filled with the fear of the Lord as they see what happens to people who lie to the Holy Ghost. Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead because they lied to the Holy Ghost. And the church is filled with the fear of the Lord. But the Bible goes on to say after that that there is an increased number of the times the gifts of the Spirit are being manifest that on a daily occurrence signs and wonders are being wrought by the hands of the apostles resulting in the continuous mass addition of people to the church. The Bible says that the revival going on in Jerusalem is getting so famous that people are flocking in from the surrounding towns and cities. They're bringing the sick people with them into Jerusalem, lying them on the streets, just hoping that the shadow of Peter might just pass over them. Read it for yourself. Your Bible says that so mighty and so powerful is this revival going on in Jerusalem that every 
single sick person that came was healed. Every last one of them. Nobody not healed. This is a powerful revival. Well, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin are really upset at all of this. And they go with further persecution and threatenings. They even imprison the apostles. Now listen to this. The apostles are in prison. No problem to God. He sends an angel. Get this. An angel at night to open up the prison doors supernaturally. And the apostles are back on the street proclaiming the words of life. You can shout hallelujah or something. I mean, angels are delivering people out of prison. Oh, they're further arrested. They're threatened. They are now even beaten. But the apostles are so full of the Holy Ghost and so powerful is this move of God that all they can do after being beaten is rejoice. That's all they can do. They rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And they go back into the temple daily having church, daily preaching the good news of a resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. And they have the tenacity to go to every house as well. And they go do house visits, but they're preaching every house they go to. And they're preaching the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And then by the time you get all of this going on, the Bible changes from addition to multiplication. By the time you get this far in the book of Acts, they're no longer being added to the church. Boy, if 3,000 saved is an addition, if 5,000 saved is an addition, if every day people are getting saved and filled with the Holy Ghost and miracles happening every day and signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit and sick being healed and demons cast out every day and that's all addition, would you please tell me what multiplication must look like? Now they are being multiplied to the church. Well, what's the devil going to do? He's got to stop this, don't you think? What is the devil to do? Persecution hasn't worked. How can the devil stop this open manifestation of the power of Almighty God? Well, he tries a new tactic. He will create inner strife. Mm. He will create inner strife and disunity by taking advantage of prejudices that exist in the heart. Can you get this? This is awful to say this. His weapon of choice? Widows. Acts chapter 6. Widows. Can you imagine a widow taking down what persecution couldn't? He has a new tactic. You see, here's a problem. There was racial tension and the Jews. In Acts chapter 6, you've got Greek widows and you've got Hebrew widows. The Greek widows are, are Jewish ladies who have lived abroad, lived outside the promised land, and they had Greek culture. They spoke Greek language, Greek education, etc. And for the true Jew... They looked upon these Grecian widows as not being faithful to the covenant of selling out to the world and therefore in the daily care of widows, they were being neglected. Now this was a serious problem in the church. It needed attention because this will seriously damage the church's reputation to have strife like this among the ranks of the people. It will destroy the sense of unity. But you know what the apostles said? said, this problem needs to be solved. But it cannot be solved with us taking away our time in prayer. It cannot be solved by removing us from our study of the Word. You see, we need to understand, if we're going to have revival, it will require a consistent, without fail, persevering prayer life on the church. And the moment we let that go is the moment we stop putting petrol in the car. Do we understand that? This is what keeps the move of the Spirit going. 
And if we can get sidelined from praying and a bunch of other things that are legitimate and they need to be done, but in the process, we're not gathering together to pray. Well, there's no petrol going in the car. It's not going to run. We want revival. It requires constant, persevering, never giving up intercession. That's just the way it works. The problem needs to be solved that the Apostle says, we're not going to kill the revival to solve this problem. It has to be solved, and if the problem's not solved, it could destroy the revival. But if we stop praying and we stop spending time in the Word, that will kill the revival. Can't do that. And so they asked for seven men to be sought out who would look after this problem and solve this very sensitive issue. This is where we meet Stephen in Acts chapter 6. His qualifications for solving this problem are second to none. If you look at what it says about Stephen, it says he's a man of good report. That means he's well spoken of. That means he has administrative skills. The Bible looks at him as an honest man. It talks about him as somebody being full of wisdom. Three times in the story of Stephen, it says he's full of the Holy Ghost. He can be appointed over this business. It says he is never filled with the Spirit. Did you know that? Stephen is never filled with the Spirit because he's always full. That's interesting. He's always full. He never needs to be filled because he's always full. The Bible says he's full of faith. He's full of power. He's full of grace. Not only that, but he has a supernatural sign and wonder ministry. He works miracles and wonders among the people as well. And on top of that, he also has this insight into the Scriptures. And he's speaking in the synagogues, and there's irresistible and irrefutable teaching in the synagogues, and nobody can oppose him. He's well qualified, this man. This is a great man. And the work of Stephen and his co-workers is so successful that this problem of the widows is solved. Amen. It's solved. It's dealt with. It's cleared away. They got it right. He solved it. And any potential hindrance to the minor revival has been swept away. As a matter of fact, as a result of Stephen's work, the revival has gone from multiplying, listen to this, to greatly multiplying. As a result of Stephen's work, The revival has gone from multiplying to greatly multiplying. And this revival is growing and growing and growing. And there's signs and wonders every day. They're not just being added to the church. They're multiplied. No, now they are greatly multiplying. Signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit. Healings are happening on a daily basis. And they're flocking in from the whole the cities and the countryside. Everybody's flocking because there's a move of God going on in Jerusalem. Now, not just the common people are getting saved. But as a result of Stephen's work, it says even the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Church, this is a mighty, irresistible, all-conquering flow of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. I thought you'd be excited about this stuff. Well, what's the devil going to do? What's the devil going to do? How can he stop this? Well, what he does is this. He sees Stephen, and he focuses his hatred on this man. Because it is obvious that this Stephen has so much potential that he is a threat to the kingdom of darkness in the future. If this is how he is as a deacon, what's he going to be like when he becomes a pastor or an evangelist or whatever? He is a threat. And the Satan just focuses his hatred. After all, this Stephen is responsible for this increased blessing in the church. He even shows more promise than the twelve apostles. I'll show that to you in a second. The apostles are unaware how their conscience is still entangled in Judaism. You do remember how Peter struggled to go to the house of Cornelius. 
Scripture reveals that this Stephen is further ahead in revelation. He's further ahead in understanding God's purposes. He's been preaching the same thing that Jesus preached. And these are the things the twelve apostles still struggled with. Clearly, Stephen is a danger and a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Notice some of the things in Acts 6 and Acts 7 that Stephen was teaching. Well, he talked about how there's going to be a shift from Moses to a prophet coming after him. They accused Stephen of speaking blasphemous things against the temple and against the law. They said he's changing all the customs that Moses taught us. And he's really challenging Judaism as Judaism was just the husk, it wasn't the corn. The gospel is the corn, and the husk serves to, to shelter the corn while it's being formed. But once you got the corn, what use is the husk? Time to throw it away. And he said the laws of Moses, and the temple and the synagogue, and all of these things was the husk, and you don't need it now that the corn has come forward. He's preaching that kind of stuff, but it's not going over well with the Sanhedrin. When he's put the trial in Acts chapter 7, if you read through Acts chapter 7, his defense, he shows far greater understanding of the purposes of God, and he's preaching things in Acts 7 that even the twelve apostles struggle with. If you would read that, you're going to see how Stephen teaches that there's far more blessing outside tradition than there is in it. He talks about how Abraham was called while he was in Mesopotamia outside the land of promise. He talks about how Joseph was blessed when he was in exile in Egypt, again, outside the promised land. He talks about how Moses encountered God in exile, how he saw that burning bush once again outside the land of promise. Boy, it seemed God can bless outside the camp pretty powerfully. Are we hearing what he's saying here? God can bless outside the camp very powerfully. Moses would speak of a prophet like unto him. And Moses said, when he has come, listen to him. Of course, he's referring to Jesus. Even Moses himself understood that everything he had was only a preparation for something to follow. The law was just to set up the gospel. It wasn't an end in itself. Stephen preached, if you listen to it in Acts chapter 7, how God changed residence. He left the tabernacle of Moses to go into the tabernacle of David and eventually into the temple of Solomon. He understood that Judaism and the revelation given to Moses was only a beginning stage of revelation. It wasn't the final product. He knew that. And therefore, his sentence was that the faith being practiced in Jerusalem was built on a faulty understanding of Judaism, and it was time to discard the husk in order to eat the corn. And even the believers in Jesus had to make that adjustment. When you got saved, you were not called into Judaism. But that was hard for them. Well, when Satan hears this being preached... His hatred knows no bounds. This revelation has got to be stopped. If Stephen's message is allowed to be heard, if it's allowed to triumph, then the devil is afraid that the gospel will end up going to all the earth, to every nation. It's got to stop. So what's the devil to do? What is he going to do? How can he take away the initiative from this unstoppable revival? How can he stop this revelation of Stephen? And, and how can he stop it from penetrating the conscience of the church? How can he shut this whole revival down? How can he take the wind out of its sails? How can he replace such excitement and put in its place massive discouragement? Well, he does something new. It's called murder. It's called murder. He must cruelly and viciously in all open hatred, take the life of this promising young leader, he must demonstrate his absolute hatred of the church. And he must instill paralyzing and crippling fear into the young, new, and tender believers 
in Jesus. So this Stephen, the one the Bible says his face shone like an angel. He's put the trial. And then as we read, he's taken out. And he is cruelly executed by an enraged mob of religious people. They drag him out of the city. They cast stone after stone upon his broken and his bleeding body. But Stephen's full of the Holy Ghost. He sees the heavens opened. And he sees Jesus standing to receive him home. Boy, when he said that to these Jewish leaders, the thought of a crucified man who died under a curse, now standing at the right hand of God, must have come across as the ultimate blasphemy. They never heard such blasphemous things in all of their life. But if the heavens are open and Stephen sees the true council meeting taking place in the heavens that day. You see, here's the question. Was Stephen on trial before an unbelieving Jewish council? Or was the unbelieving Jewish council on trial before heaven? Who really was holding court that day? Who really was passing judgment that day? Even in death, Stephen's just like Jesus. I mean, as he, Jesus prayed from the cross, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. Even Stephen says, Lord, receive my spirit. He's just like Jesus. I mean, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Stephen says, Lord, they don't know what they're doing either. Don't lay this sin against their charge. He's just like Stephen. And as Stephen's physical life is draining away, but there's one in the heavens who usually in the Bible is sitting on their right hand. But in this story, he's standing at the right hand to receive the hero home. This Stephen. Now, is this a triumph? Or is this a tragedy? How do you view it? As triumphant as it sounds, I want you to think you're one of these believers in Jerusalem, just newly saved, How did it affect the church in Jerusalem? From their perspective, everything was lost. Such a wave of murderous persecution was now unleashed against the church that the church literally emptied overnight. The church was completely scattered. The multitudes of people flocking to Jerusalem quit coming. Fear for their lives possessed their souls. Massive discouragement set in. What had happened to the blessing of God? Where was the power of God now? Did these new believers know that they would become the object of such hatred? Why couldn't God, who just yesterday was performing mighty miracles, why couldn't He stop this from taking place? How could the God who promised blessing and increase allow this to happen? What happened to those angels anyway that were opening prison doors? Why aren't they shielding people now? Why is the enemy triumphing over the people of God? This mighty revival has been shut down. You're not reading anymore of people being added to the church. You're not reading anymore of healings taking place. You're not reading any more of multitudes flocking into the city of Jerusalem. Ultimately, the devil has won. After experiencing such tormenting opposition after initial blessing, this is a setback for the church. And sometimes you and I go through setbacks and we wonder if we will ever recover. Because from the perspective now, the revival is in the past. And the cost of recovery is a little too high. The price of prayer is too high. The threat to our lives is too great. We have this in our memory. But can we have any influence in the world? The fact is all of us have taken such a beating at times. 
that we wonder if we could ever rise up again. It looks like the devil has won. When you and I experience such setbacks, when we see from our limited earthly perspective, discouragement can really take hold of our souls. We can really be depleted of vibrant, overcoming faith. We become like Habakkuk with our complaints and our challenges about why the Babylonians are winning. Where is God? It looks like the devil shut this down this is no time to end a message is it (laughs) but now the rest of the story come on you can't let me stop there can you but now the rest of the story. There are two words in the Bible that I've come to learn to love. Two words. You'll find it often. Look up in a concordance and look all this up. Two words. But God. The end of the story is not the end of the story. I don't know if I ever told you, but I know what the end of the story is. <laughs> The end of the story is glory. But God, but God will shoot at them with an arrow. But God raised him from the dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God commended his love to us. Has the devil really won? I want to declare to you that no matter how it looks, And how it feels, and how it appears, the devil wins. Nothing. Aren't you glad I got that word out? (laughs) The devil wins nothing. Oh, but the whole revival shut down. People aren't being saved every day. There's no gifts of the Spirit. No miracles. Nobody flocking. Let me repeat, the devil wins nothing. Because there's a different perspective that we've got to look at from this story. I want us to look at it from God's side instead of how it appears to you and me and how it feels to us emotionally. Look at it from God's side. There's a bigger picture here. In spite of all the revival, in spite of all the healings, in spite of all the conversions, I'm going to be bold enough to say that the church of Jerusalem was a failure. Failure. How can I say that? If that's failure, then Lord, give us some failure. How could I say it's a failure? I'll tell you why. Because in eight years of history, never once did anybody venture outside the city of Jerusalem to preach the gospel. You don't read about it, of anybody going out. In other words, the Great Commission has not been obeyed. The Great Commission. They saw Pentecost as for the Jew and for the Jew only. They had taken Pentecost prisoner. They held the Holy Ghost hostage. We're going to keep this within the confines of life as we know it. And God dare not move us out of our traditions. And God dare not move us out of our comfort zone. And God dare not challenge the way we think. We will accept revival as long as it agrees with our lifestyle. And our religion. And our tradition. And our way of doing things. The Great Commission has never been obeyed. Jesus said, go to all nations and teach all nations. Didn't he? Didn't he say that? Didn't he say, go into the whole world and preach the gospel to 
every creature. Didn't he say that? Didn't he say this gospel will be a testimony amongst all nations? Didn't Jesus say that? Didn't he say stay in Jerusalem until you're endued with power? And after you're endued with power, you're to go to all the world, to all the nations. But that was contrary to their culture. Why should we go when three times a year all the Jews came to Jerusalem? Every time there was a feast, all the Jews were to come to Jerusalem. So they were so accustomed to people coming to Jerusalem, it's amazing what you can't hear when you're ruled by tradition. It's amazing what you can't hear. Jesus said, go, but it never registered with them. We only read of those coming into Jerusalem in eight years of history. There is no going out. The whole story of the revival centers around Jerusalem. It centers around the temple. It centers around the law. It centers around the synagogue. Everything Jewish. And even after the church was scattered, if they did preach the word anywhere when they were scattered, according to chapter 11 and verse 19 of Acts, they would only preach the Jews. What was the problem? Why was the church a failure in spite of all of this miracle? Well, why do you think the story that introduces Stephen was an argument about Greek and Hebrew widows? Was there no other problem to report? You think that was the only problem the church had? Why is that one? And here is the hard and the sad truth. It's because the church was full of racism. The church was full of prejudice, even in their spirit-filled existence. The Jews saw themselves as exclusive. They had no heart for the Gentiles. What? Go to the Gentiles? They had settled into the narrowness of their traditions. They had not understood that the law was only preparation for the gospel to follow. And they made a choice to cling to their history to their tradition and to their heritage instead of growing in vision and in purpose. They became comfortable living in their past and lost all sense of destiny. Did you hear that? Even in their spirit-filled existence. They failed to work through transition. They didn't want to have to learn new things. They didn't want to have to alter the way they read their own scriptures. So they ended up embracing a wrong self-understanding and they could not enlarge their thinking at all. Isn't that evident in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8? Remember that? He goes to Jerusalem, this Ethiopian eunuch, for the purpose of worship. He's there to find God. He's studying the scriptures. He's reading the the scroll, Isaiah. He's heard probably about things that have happened. And he goes there. The apostles are still there. Would you please tell me why a man going to Jerusalem, where the revival had been, where the twelve apostles are still there, why he would go there and nobody would preach to him? Why does he have to be on his way home an unconverted man? Why? Because he was a Gentile. And we don't preach the Gentiles. God had to use someone called Philip, friend of Stephen, to minister to this Ethiopian eunuch. Why did God meet such resistance from Peter, the same guy who stood on the day of Pentecost? Why is Peter putting up an argument about going to the house of Cornelius? Why? Because he was racist. He saw the Jews as exclusive and Gentiles not worth bothering about. My goodness. And when Peter did go, why did the rest of the apostles back in Jerusalem call him into question about it? There's a mindset here. You see, some people can accept the work of the Spirit as long as it doesn't challenge your borders to which you become accustomed. As long as your self-understanding isn't challenged, as long as their way of thinking does not have to adjust too much. Well, I asked, what could the devil do? And I'm going to ask another question. What's God going to do with this situation? After much patience, it appears that the church of Jerusalem will not adopt his heart for the world to go to all the families of the earth. They're exclusive in their own minds. So John 12, 24 says, Unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, 
that brings forth much fruit. So God's going to make a sacrifice. He's going to take his best and sow it as a seed. He chooses Stephen, the one who has the greatest grasp of his heart, will and revelation of his purposes. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You'll be witnesses to me first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. How are we going to get the gospel to Judea and Samaria? They won't leave Jerusalem. Acts 1.8 is the command. Acts 8.1 is the fulfillment. If you read Acts 8 and verse 1, it says the church was scattered because of the persecution. And in their scattering, you would never guess where they went. Where did they go? Judea and Samaria. In other words, if we don't go by willingly, if we don't go by revelation, God has his ways of moving us. Amen. God has his ways of moving us. And they're not always pleasant. Sometimes it hurts. But sometimes in the explosions that happen in life, it could just be that God is just moving us on. Amen. I mean, you can get excited if you want. (laughs) Who is it that ends up going to those despised Samaritans? Was it any of the twelve apostles? No. It's Philip again. The co-worker of Stephen. Peter and John will go check it out later. Finally get out of Jerusalem to check it out. And you know what they're going to learn in Samaria? That God accepts Samaritans without making Jews out of them. You know what Peter and John are going to learn? That they, Samaritans, can get baptized in the Holy Ghost completely outside the context of Judaism. So let me ask you a question. What did the devil win by this tragedy he inflicted upon the church of Jerusalem? What did he gain by taking the life of Stephen? The devil wins nothing. His actions only cause the purposes of God to be fulfilled. He plays into God's hands every time because the God that you and I worship is the sovereign one who knows how to make everything work together for good. Through this tragedy, the Great Commission was subtly being played out. God knows what He's doing. I could choose to be disappointed or I could choose to shiggy and off. I can choose to be discouraged or I can choose to believe that God makes everything, even tragedy, work for my favor and for His purposes. So you and I need to acknowledge that the truth is this, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen. Nothing. Everything, listen to this, everything, whether it's tribulation, whether it's distress, whether it's persecution, whether it's famine, whether it's nakedness, whether it's peril, whether it's the sword, it always works for our good and always serves to promote the purposes of God. When will we learn that in all things we are more than conquerors? Do we not understand that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Let us acknowledge that God makes everything work in our favor and it furthers His purposes. Come on. Are you excited? Will you shiggy it off a little bit with me? God is good. He's in control. Church, it's time for faith. We turn the corner. It's time for faith. It's time to shiggy it off. It's whatever looks to be negative coming our direction. We need to face it with a resolution that we will rejoice in the Lord. As Habakkuk said in the end, I will joy in the God of my salvation. I don't know how he's going to make it work for good, but believe you me, he is. And I'm far better off for the explosions in the past. Far better off. We're all far better off for the tragedies of the past because God has simply used it to set up something good. Come on. Hallelujah. He's worthy to be praised. He knows what He is doing. Hallelujah.
So we got the gospel to Judea. We got it to Samaria. But it says to the uttermost parts of the earth. What's God got to do to make that happen? Well, if you read Acts chapter 6 when Stephen is teaching in the synagogues. It says that he's in the synagogue there of the Libertines, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and Asia. Now it goes on to say when Stephen was preaching and teaching in the synagogue that nobody in that synagogue could resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Why is this so significant? Well, because the Libertines, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, Cilicians, and Asians were in that synagogue. There was in Jerusalem a promising young son of a Pharisee that had gone there to study at a young age at the feet of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. And he was taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. He was someone who was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the stock of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, he was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. He profited in the Jews' religion above his equals, and he was more zealous than anybody for the tradition of his fathers. You know his name. Saul. Saul from where? And Tarsus was no mean city in what province? Oh, come on now. Cilicia. Oh, what synagogue was Stephen teaching in? Of the Cilicians. So in that synagogue, this Pharisee of the Pharisees, the best that the religious world had to offer was there. Listening to the blasphemous words of Stephen. But the Bible says nobody, not even Saul, could resist the spirit and the wisdom by which he spoke. So with all his zealous learning and education, he tried to resist, but like all the others, unable to. And his whole theology and education was undone by a Holy Ghost-filled deacon. Somebody full of the Holy Ghost. Well, he was undone, he was convicted. But how many know there are some people who are just too stubborn to admit that they've been beat? They will not submit. Jesus would say, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Rather than yield, some people would just fight. Nobody wants to be told, your whole life is built on the wrong foundation. Nobody wants to be told that. We'd rather die than submit to that. Well, he would not yield. He would fight. He'd try to drown out this conviction. How is he going to drown out the voice of conviction? He breathes out threatenings. He breathes out slaughter. The death of Stephen brought him great pleasure. Got him out of the way. But you, can't get, you can get rid of the voice. The, the, you can get rid of the, the person who brings you the message, but you can't get rid of the message. You can't get rid of the message. And so what he's going to do, he, has, he now takes on the entire church. Even after it has been scattered, he's going to hunt it down, wishing to remove it entirely from the face of the earth. He was there at the martyrdom of Stephen. He guarded the clothes, the coats of the witnesses who threw the stones. He heard Stephen pray for forgiveness of his enemies. Little did he know how that prayer would affect his life. So he's running from conviction, trying to drown it out by obliterating the church. But God answers the prayer of a dying man. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And a light shines on Saul as he's making his menacing journey to Damascus. I wonder if he had seen that light before shining on the face of Stephen. You know the story of Saul who becomes Paul. 
You know that he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. You know he's the one who takes the lead of taking the gospel to the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. He was soundly converted, so thoroughly changed in his understanding of the Old Testament, and he became so completely and absolutely grateful for God's mercy to him that his sense of debt and gratitude was so great that nothing, nothing was too precious to give up for God. Nothing. God had his man who would embrace the most difficult and arduous task of taking the gospel to the whole world. God had his man. So let me ask you again. What did the devil win by his attempt to discourage the church? When he took out Stephen, what did he gain by that attack? What was the result of his persecution What did he win? I want to remind us that no matter how it appears, no matter what it looks like, and no matter what it feels like, the devil wins nothing. So when you and I get discouraged, when the wind is knocked out of our sails, When we are confronted with disappointment about how God doesn't seem to come through for us at times. When angels stop opening prison doors and when it appears that we are left helpless before our enemies. When we have a crisis of faith, let us remember there's another point of view. God's view. The heavenly and eternal perspective so that we can realize that all things always work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. If God be for us, who or what can be against us? Under God's mastery, everything in the end always works in our favor. Through what appears on the surface as something working backwards to our expectations, against the forward movement that we so desire, the truth is this the sovereign God is simply furthering his own purposes. So I ask you the story of Stephen, his death, was this a tragedy or a triumph? When expectations are not realized as you envision them to be. When God's just not performing the way we're telling Him to perform. When things go backwards, is it a tragedy or a triumph? Let me remind you one more time. The devil wins. Nothing. That's no time for the battery to quit. (laughs) The devil wins nothing. In all things, the purpose of God always triumphs. God wins. Amen. So let us rejoice. Hallelujah. God wins. Hallelujah. Come on, God wins.